Hi, a willing nerd here, lacking in sleep to bring you 20-minute summaries of the top news from over 30 weekly pieces and to show you why they matter. I'm Marcel Castro, and here's your homework. Hey everyone! Today, I'll be covering news from November 22nd to November 28th. And I'll catch you up on the previous week's occurrences as well. Forgive me for not recording a podcast episode last week. I do have an excuse, I was at an online NUN conference. But I know that here I'm just the messenger. So without further ado, this week's topics are Asian trade the RCEP trade deal, and Chinese-Australian tensions. Responses following the murder of a top Iranian nuclear scientist. Escalation of the conflict in Ethiopia. French police violence and press freedom. And the interesting news story of the week. An informative note. I get my news from various sources, including Reuters, CNN, BBC, The Guardian, Bloomberg, and many more. I will cite the majority of the sources that I use. But if you want to see my complete list of sources or just want some interesting news pieces, feel free to email heresyourhw at gmail.com and your questions will be answered. Here's Your Homework is distributed by Anchor and is now available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Enjoy! On to this week's first topic, Asian trade, the RCEP trade deal, and Chinese-Australian tensions. First, what is the RCEP? RCEP stands for Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. This was an agreement or trade deal signed on November 15th by the Asian members, so the members of the Association of the Southeast Asian Nations, including Brunei, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and the Philippines, alongside China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. This is potentially the world's largest free trade agreement according to Reuters. It includes nearly one-third of the global population and about 30% of the global GDP. And according to Reuters, the aim of this trade deal is to progressively lower tariffs in order to counter protectionism, boost investment, and, as stated by Reuters, allow freer movement of goods within the region. This deal must still be ratified before coming into effect, and this could take years to complete. Nevertheless, what does the RCEP entail? According to Reuters, the RCEP focuses on cutting tariffs, increasing market access, and it actually accounts for adaptations that consider its less developed members. As per Article 8.6, it allows its less developed members, like Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam, to have more flexibility and a greater time to implement the necessary legislative and institutional changes that decreasing tariffs and increasing trade between nations will entail. Now, I actually read large part of the RCEP. It is a 511-page document, but if you're up for it, it is definitely worth the read. 
In the preamble of this deal, it details the objectives of the deal, including economic growth, equitable economic development, economic cooperation, and once again, it takes into account different levels of development. This actually borrows from the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which despite arguing for increased trade and freer trade amongst nations, it does allow for adaptations amongst less developed members. Now, another idea that the RCEP borrows from the WTO is this idea of the most favored nation status. The WTO makes it so that every country must give each other the same access to trade. Therefore, countries cannot discriminate amongst trading partners by granting certain trading partners lower tariffs than others. The RCEP does the same thing. Now, of course, a clear loophole in the most favored nation status is the creation of bilateral or multilateral trade agreements, which the RCEP allows. Chapter 4 of the RCEP is actually all about transparency. It is quite interesting and quite novel. It states that each party shall promptly publish on the internet, to the extent possible, the following information. It states that each party shall pu promptly publish on the internet, to the extent possible, information including the procedure for imports, export, the rates of duties and taxes, fees and charges imposed on trade, rules for classification of products, laws, regulations, etc. And it states that all of this should be made available on the internet to governments, traders, or other interested persons. So it is great to see how the internet is actually coming into these trade deals to increase transparency, which is great for consumers, is great for countries, and is great for importers and exporters who have more access to this type of information in a way democratizing access to information and potentially aiding those that would not have had the access to this without the internet. Of course, we will still have local producers that lack access to the internet and therefore still don't have access to this information, but it is a step in the right direction. Now, chapter 11 of the deal talks about intellectual property and public health. And it notes that though the chapter is all about protecting intellectual property, it states that all the parties agree that this chapter does not and should not prevent a party from taking measures to protect public health. This, of course, alludes to the scandal that occurred with the World Trade Organization when in protecting intellectual property and patents for AIDS medication, it actually kept several African nations from producing and providing their citizens with AIDS medication. So it really combats that idea by stating, yes, we protect intellectual property, but public health comes first. And a last point about the trade deal. It's quite interesting to note that on the last page of the deal, on page 511, all the places in which this deal was signed are listed. And because this deal was signed through a video conference call, every single country is listed. So it really reflects this idea of the era of Zoom and the coronavirus pandemic. Now, why is this regional comprehensive economic partnership significant? First, the RCEP is seen as a way to counter the protectionist trend that arose with the coronavirus pandemic. We know that as countries' economies worsened, as domestic industries were threatened, several nations began increasing tariffs and decreasing their imports of foreign goods. The RCEP counters that by increasing trade amongst all parties. It is the first deal that joins Japan, South Korea, and China together. And according to Peter Petrie of Peterson Institute for International Economics and Michael Plummer of Johns Hopkins University, as noted by The Economist, these two academics actually estimate that Japan and South Korea 
have the most to gain from this deal is expected that by 2030, real incomes in Japan and South Korea will be 1% higher than they would have been with this deal. Now, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, China, and New Zealand will likewise have this increase in real incomes at a lesser extent, but still will have it nevertheless. Another significant part of the RCEP is, is this idea of the rules of origin. It actually sets out how much of products must be produced locally in order for it to enjoy lower tariffs. And a great benefit of the RCEP is that it helps companies and producers by having one set of rules and paperwork, which will decrease the time that it takes to process transactions and increase trade efficiency amongst members, which in turn may financially help all exporters and importers as well. Indeed, according to Deborah Elms, founder of the Asian Trade Center, the RCEP will make it much easier to manufacture and sell goods in the region. The RCEP will add almost $200 billion to the global economy and 0.2% per year to the GDP of its members. This is according to the CNBC, an estimate from Peter Petri and Michael Plummer. We know that with freer trade. Consumers in Southeast Asian countries will have greater choice. They will have greater access to resources. They will have increased competition, which may lead to increased efficiency for local producers. It may lead to economic growth amongst trading partners, as I previously stated regarding real incomes. And this deal may increase international peace and cooperation amongst members of Asian alongside China, South Korea, Japan, and others. Of course, there are setbacks. There, there will always be disadvantages to freer trade. First, there are several that are worried about increased Chinese influence in the region. Noting that China is already a main trading partner of most countries in the region, making trade more effective and facilitating trade between them may increase the share of Chinese involvement in these countries' trade. This is not a disadvantage to China, but it does pose certain problems to the US, which desire to combat Chinese influence in the region. Other setbacks with freer trade are, for instance, the danger to domestic producers. The reason why India left the RCEP was because it was worried for its domestic producers who would have to compete with Chinese imports, which may be either of a higher quality or of a much lower price. Therefore, there is a certain threat to domestic producers that must be considered. Of course, there's always argument that lowering tariffs will decrease government revenue. We know that governments actually make money from tariffs, from taxing imported or exported goods and services. And so by decreasing tariffs, the government will have less access to this revenue. In several countries, tariffs make up only a small portion of government revenue, but perhaps in less developed countries, that is not necessarily the case. Moreover, China has been accused of undervaluing their currency, of essentially artificially keeping their exchange rate very low, because in doing so, they keep their exports cheap and hence are able to export more. All of these are factors that countries joining the RCEP must consider. There will always be advantages and disadvantages to free trade and protectionism, but at least the RCEP does work towards the World Trade Organization's goal of international trade. Now, the RCEP was signed on November 15th, 
But according to CNN Business on November 27th, China actually placed tariffs on Australian wine imports, knowing that China and Australia are both parties to the RCEP. China will place tariffs between 107.1% and 212% on Australian wine. China in August actually announced an investigation into Australian wine imports. It accuses Australia of giving unfair government subsidies to the Australian wine sectors, aiding Australian wine producers and hence lowering the price of Australian wine, so creating this unfair advantage of Australian wine in the Chinese market. China is actually by far the biggest importer of Australian wine. According to Wine Australia, China alone makes up around 39% of Australia's total wine exports and hence this large raise in tariffs may threaten Australia's winemaking industry. As is clear, the RCEP still has not come into effect and we could question whether it will come into effect or whether these tensions amongst China, Australia and other nations that are party to the deal may threaten its overall objectives. On to this week's second topic. Responses following the murder of a top Iranian nuclear scientist. A top Iranian nuclear scientist was killed this week and the Iranian supreme leader accuses Israel of being responsible for the act. This man was ambushed in Tehran near his car and was killed after several shots were fired. The Iranian supreme leader has pledged to retaliate and to continue the work of Mohsen Farizadeh, this man that was killed, who both Western and Israeli governments believe that was the architect of the secret Iranian program to make nuclear weapons. All this according to Reuters. Israel declined to comment on the killing of Mohsen despite Iran's accusations. Part of why this murder is so significant is because of the controversies with Iran's nuclear program. Between 2010 and 2012, at least four Iranian scientists were killed. Tehran actually called this a program of assassinations and that's sabotaging its nuclear program. This according to Reuters. Now, in 2015, Iran, the US and other signatories had signed the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, or as it is most commonly known, the Iran nuclear deal. Iran had agreed to essentially reduce its nuclear weapon developments, reduce its uranium enrichment, and essentially have enough uranium for nuclear energy without having enough uranium for the development of nuclear weapons. In turn, nations would lift their sanctions on Iran. Members lifted all their nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. So Iran was now allowed to trade its oil in international markets. It is crucial to understand that before the lifting of sanctions, sanctions by the UN, the US and the EU on Iran had led to a crippled economy. It actually had cost $160 billion in oil revenue to Iran from 2012 to 2016. This is according to the BBC. After 2015 and the signing of the JCPOA, Trump became the American president. And on May 2018, Trump left the JCPOA and reinstated sanctions on November of that year against Iran. And of course, after the US decided to lift this deal and implement sanctions on Iran, 
And after the US killing of Soleimani, Iran declared that it would no longer take part in its promises in the JCPOA and began once again to increase its enrichment of uranium and threaten to develop further nuclear weapons. Hence, the murder of this Iranian nuclear scientist comes back to the threat posed to the world by Iran's nuclear development program and it comes back to this idea of international intervention in Iran. Countries repeatedly kill Iran's nuclear scientists, repeatedly intervene by killing its government officials and are indeed violating Iran's national sovereignty. Yes, with the excuse of world security and safety, but are still intervening in Iran's sovereignty nevertheless. We must wait to see what Iran's retaliation entails, but the world should be prepared for a nation that is willing to take its steps as an independent nation that feels that its sovereignty is threatened. On to this week's third topic, the escalation of the conflict in Ethiopia. So first, a background on Ethiopia's conflict. Right now, there are two parties that are fighting against each other in Ethiopia. On one side, there are the federal forces, led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who is an ethnic Aroma. He's part of the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. The federal forces, led by the Prime Minister, are fighting against the forces of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. How did this fighting start? So, as detailed by foreign policy writer Kasahan Milais, this conflict has much deeper roots than it seems. On the surface, if you try to research the causes of this conflict, the media will tell you that there are two main causes. First, the Ethiopian government accused the TPLF troops of destroying the airport of an ancient town, which the TPLF denied. And second, the Ethiopian government postponed its elections due to COVID-19. The Tigray region, led by the TPLF, actually held its regional election, ignoring government ruling, and it declared that the TPLF won all seats in the region. The Ethiopian government declared that this election was null and void because the government had prohibited elections during COVID-19. Now, according to foreign policy writer Milais, this conflict is actually mostly about power and the economy. The TPLF sees Prime Minister Abiy as a threat to their power. First, the TPLF accuses Abiy of marginalizing their ethnic group, according to Reuters. Indeed, Abiy has removed Tigrayan officials from the TPLF from influential roles in the government and the military and actually detained a lot of them under human rights abuses and corruption charges. Abiy promised the Ethiopian people to increase their freedoms and in exchange he's actually imprisoning many TPLF leaders for crimes including corruption, torture, and murder. Some historical background. The TPLF actually controlled Ethiopia for three decades before Abiy's rise to power. In 1991, the TPLF ousted the reigning military government in Ethiopia and from then on ruled the country. It was an authoritarian regime. They had complete control of the government and the army. They jailed opposition politicians, journalists, they used force to curb anti-government protests and they were repeatedly accused of human rights violations, including torture against opposition party members. 
All this according to foreign policy. Abe's government acted against the TPLF's power. He actually released thousands of political prisoners, journalists, and signed a peace treaty with the neighboring Eritrea. So clearly, there's a power struggle occurring in Ethiopia between Abiy's government and the TPLF. This week, there were several events about this. On November 23rd, 2020, Ethiopian federal forces encircled the capital of the Tigray region. And on Monday, the government gave the TPLF a 72-hour surrender ultimatum. Note that around 40 thousand refugees have already fled from Ethiopia into Sudan due to the conflict and there may be hundreds or maybe even thousands killed due to this conflict, all of this according to Reuters. On November 24th, Ethiopian Prime Minister stated that Tigrayan militia and special forces were surrendering in line with the ultimatum that was proposed. However, on November 26th, 2020, the Ethiopian military began its final phase of the offensive after the ultimatum's deadline expired. And on November 28, 2020, the head of the TPLF told Reuters that Mekele, the capital of Tigray, was under quote-unquote heavy bombardment. He stated that the Ethiopian military was using artillery in the assault and a diplomat actually stated that the attack had begun. A government spokeswoman for Abiy's government stated that the Ethiopian National Defense Forces, quote, do not have a mission to bombard its own city and people. Clearly, the international community is quite divided on this issue. On one side, you have a party that had an authoritarian regime, and on the other side, you have a prime minister that won the Nobel Peace Prize and yet is responding with severe force to the occurrences in his country, leading to several dead and several displaced persons, potentially risking a crisis in Ethiopia and its neighbors. On to this week's fourth topic, French police violence and press freedom. On November 24th, 2020, the French police were photographed dismantling a protest by refugees in Paris. Police officers were filmed and photographed while tipping migrants out of tents, slamming riot shields into people, chasing people down the streets, attacking refugees, journalists, and others with tear gas and truncheons. Refugees were gathered in this square in Paris in a protest. Around 450 refugees had set up tents to protest the, open quote, forcible clearing of migrants from makeshift shelters in the northern suburb of St. Denis, close quote. This according to The Guardian. Now, images of the French police's excessive force when dismantling this protest actually shocked the nation and the international community, especially considering the French government's proposal of a law that would increase the power of the police and actually ban the footage of police officers if this footage endangered their images or sought to harm them. This law proposed in France, as stated by The Guardian on November 9th, is potentially a threat to press freedom in France and as seen through these shocking events showcasing police violence, actually may hide an inherent problem in France. France has been under frequent incidences of police violence. On November 27th, Macron actually responded to images that showed Paris police beating a black music producer. Macron called it shameful for France. 
This was a beating of a man that circulated online. This man stated that he had been walking the street without a face mask, which is against French COVID-19 health protocols. And after he saw a police car, he went into his nearby studio to avoid being fined. However, he stated that the police followed him inside and began to assault and racially abuse him. The police was filmed and these images and videos were leaked to the press. This is according to Reuters. Of course, there's a clear issue with police violence in France and, as we know, in the world. But these events are extremely significant considering this proposed government law, which would decrease police accountability, decrease freedom of the press in France, which supposedly is all about freedom and liberty. On to the interesting news story of the week. As noted by the BBC on November 24th, Scotland will be the first country in the world to make period products free. A bill was introduced by Monica Lennon. She is part of the Labour Party in Scotland and she has been campaigning to end period poverty since 2016. Period poverty, as defined by the BBC, is when those on low incomes cannot afford or access suitable period products. And this is quite a hidden issue in society not only because it only affects women, but because periods are such a taboo topic. There's a certain stigma in talking about menstruation. But actually, it can cost up to £8 per month for a woman to buy tampons and pads. And many women don't have the money to pay for this at this cost. Indeed, research has shown that there is extreme embarrassment in buying period products. Researchers cited by the BBC's article found that 71% of 14 to 21 year olds felt embarrassed buying period products. Period poverty and the stigma in menstruation threatens women's access to education. Indeed, research cited by the BBC stated that almost half of the girls surveyed by researchers missed school because of their periods. I hope that nations worldwide follow through with Scotland's example and make period products free. I hope that they seek to tackle this stigma in menstruation and make it so that women have access to these basic necessities and make it so that menstruation isn't a taboo topic and can be talked about as a part of daily conversation, as a part of women empowerment. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Here's Your Homework. If you have any comments, questions, doubts, want to review my sources, or just want to start up some debate, feel free to contact me at heresyourhw at gmail.com and your questions will be answered. Join me next week for another episode of Here's Your Homework, weekly news from a willing nerd.